Oh, hi there, guys. Um, yeah, sorry, excuse me a sec. I'm just having a look in my doctor's bag for some blood bottles. No luck yet. I have, however, found some interesting things. I've got 15 Welch and Allen otoscope disposable earpieces, adult sized only. I've got one Welch and Allen otoscope disposable earpieces plastic sleeve, which the 15 pieces should be in. I found one tube of KY jelly, uncertain age, minus one lid, but a plug so hard in its neck that nothing will possibly come out unless I puncture the side of it. I'm not sure how I'm going to use that in the future. And one ball, uh, one box of cotton wool balls, um, expiry date unknown. Do cotton wool balls go off? Do they? Should they have an expiry date? Everything else around me in the doctor's room has got an expiry date on, um, but not cotton wool balls. They will be the thing that lives forever alongside cockroaches. Sadly, no spare blood bottles, so I seem to be unable to help with this current crisis. Just when you thought a pandemic was more than enough to manage, now general practice may run out of blood bottles. As the government warns us, stop doing tests! We ask ourselves if we don't have blood tests, what else have we got left? Paracetamol, amoxicillin, 20 antidepressants... To be fair, this would probably get us through 99% of our consultations these days. But still, blood tests are about the only thing that we can order. I don't want to look even more castrated in front of my patients, thank you. In truth, I'm not entirely sure how bad this crisis is before you start getting really worried out there. I saw this on Pulse just now. I thought I'd be topical with some breaking news. I've done a quick poll of three GPs around the area and none of them know what I'm talking about. Either the message hasn't got through or they're all just working so bloody hard they haven't had time to read the memo yet. Anyway, someone should tell the government that actually the idea about us only doing essential blood tests is not entirely alien. You know, the essential blood tests that you use to make a diagnosis or to make sure that you're treating someone safely. They may be surprised to find how few non-essential blood tests we do in general practice these days. No one's got the time or the energy to do anything else. On the other hand, there have been a box of blood bottles sat in the corner of my room for approximately the last decade. I suspect there's a similar box in virtually every consultation room around the country, just on the off chance I can ever be asked to take my own bloods. Thankfully, this virtually never happened because we've got some very good phlebotomists our practice. And anyway, last time I tried to use them, probably about two years ago, after I'd blown the dust off the bottles, I found that the expiry date was set for 2015. If only blood bottles were like cotton wool. Anyway, I'm going to get rid of those blood bottles and abandon the idea I should have them in my room. It is only unnecessary waste, which reminds me to remind you, our Green GP course that's coming up in October, it will be live, it will be free. Please come and join us. It's very topical at the moment as we watch the world burn and scientists point out the huge scale of the undertaking we're all going to have to do over the next few years to try and keep things from going really off the charts. Thankfully, there are things that we can do in general practice. There have been a um, small cohort of very enthusiastic GPs that have been driving this agenda for many years. A quick shout out to one of them. To, uh, so that's Tamsin Ellis. She's a GP in London. I heard her on the radio the other day in a really good interview. I will put the link in the description below. And I suppose I should really get on with things. It is Wednesday, the 10th of August, 2021. And this is the Hot Topics podcast.
Hi there, everyone. It's Neil Tucker here from MB Medical. This is the Hot Topics podcast. Thank you for joining us once again. As ever, remember, you can get in touch. You can email on hottopics at mbmedical.com. You can uh, find us on Facebook. You can find us on Twitter at GP Hot Topics. I normally do that at the end, but I always mean to do it at the start. Finally, I've achieved one of my goals for the year. I hope you're well wherever you are. I hope you're having a nice summer. Yes, the weather hasn't been that special, has it, at the moment. But maybe you managed to dodge COVID, track and trace and being pinged and you actually managed to get away. I'm sure you all deserve a really good break. It'll be interesting to see how this blood bottle shortage pans out. I feel like I haven't had a great track record of getting on top of the topical things on this podcast. Usually by the time I record it within 24 hours, NHS England or the government or someone has published something to say something in complete contradiction to whatever I've just said. Subsequently, I'm mindful to just steer clear of COVID this time. But in fact, we're going to very, very quickly talk about some COVID research. Then we're going to do some research on Uh, management of rotator cuff tears. We see quite a lot of those in general practice. And then some research in the BJGP on fit testing and its role for excluding colorectal cancer. Okay, let's kick off with COVID. Well, thankfully, things have not been as bad as most of us expected they would be after the government threw open the doors and told everyone to start sharing. And of course, they're still trying to figure out why on earth this is. Lots of chat about most of the population having COVID antibodies. I've got absolutely no idea. I'm not going to even try and guess at that today. I'm staying on safe ground with some new research into three treatments for managing COVID-19 in community-based patients. Doxycycline, azithromycin, colchazine. Could these be the next treatments we're prescribing our patients? They've all been tested because of their supposed anti-inflammatory properties, not because of any antimicrobial effects. And I will be surprisingly succinct for me, none of them work. I hardly suspect that none of you have been prescribing these drugs for this purpose. So just keep doing what you're doing. Well done, team. Okay, next we've got a paper in The Lancet looking at the management of rotator cuff injuries. So this is a very common presentation in primary care. Most people come to us and they go, I've got a bad shoulder. And you go, hmm, yes, I think it's a rotator cuff tear. And they go, I think I need a scan. And you go, I think you probably just need to go and see physio. And they go, oh, I suppose so. And we make the referral and that's generally the end of it for us. But what's the best strategy when they get to the physio? Should they just have a one-off appointment where they're given some education on doing some movement and exercise with a shoulder or is it more effective if they have a series of consultations where they have progressive exercise slowly building up the work they're doing based around the achievements that they've made so they recruited just over 700 people they split them in two and put them in one of those two groups they then split them again and put them in another group which was those who had a corticosteroid injection first and those who did not And the results showed despite patients getting up to six sessions with the physio when they were in the progressive exercise group, it was no better than a single session using best practice advice. So in the study protocol, the physios gave the patient an advice booklet which showed them some exercises. They were then given an exercise plan that they could do at home and shown how to do those exercises which is probably the only part of this that we couldn't do in general practice, which would be highly convenient for our patients if we adopted this approach. 
Although it's worth pointing out that they did also give them access to an online video that showed how to do the exercises. And you wonder if um, this might be enough for many of our patients. Perhaps the bit that really interested me was the role of steroid injections, and they also made absolutely no difference in the long term, although a few of the patients may have had a little bit of improved function and reduction in pain at eight weeks. Generally, as we found with most conditions, we've been ramming steroids into for years. Actually, it doesn't seem to make that much difference. Still, at least this research shows us that when a patient comes back to us and goes, I only had one session of physio, we can now say to them, I know, it not it fantastic that that's exactly the right thing to do? And so on to our final piece of research. Boy, we're getting through it today, aren't we? Anyone would think I've got to pick up the kids from Holiday Club in the next 10 minutes. Anyway, I digress. On to the BJGP. And the most interesting things in this edition of the BJGP, I think, are actually the editorials. And they've got one on beyond COVID, respiratory infection in cardiovascular events, just highlighting that actually there are increases in heart attacks and other cardiac events, not just with COVID, but with any respiratory infection. Also highlighting that prevention is better than a cure. Indeed, once people have a respiratory infection, there's not much you can do to reduce your increased risk of having a cardiac event at that point. But of course, we can manage the risk factors before the event. So in other words, keep doing what we're doing, identifying those who are at high risk of cardiovascular disease and modifying those risk factors when the patient allows us. A second editorial is on the opportunities and risks within the expanding role of general practice. And here the authors make an interesting argument about the benefits of an expanded GP role, including the idea about taking on more um, complex care. They highlight, to quote, a wealth of evidence demonstrating improved patient satisfaction, better healthcare outcomes and even longer life expectancies associated with continuity of carer. And I hear you, it does seem to make a lot of sense. As I've said on this podcast before, GPs are highly skilled individuals. This also goes for all the advanced nurse practitioners, the clinical pharmacists, AMPs and everyone else who works in general practice. We're all intelligent people. We have the ability to learn and I'd be confident we can manage any condition. But of course, I really feel like they've read the room wrong here. Most of us aren't even experiencing that summer holiday lull that usually eases the pressure on general practice just a smidge, just so that you can have a tiny bit of breathing space. The demand continues unrelenting right now. And we know, even though the government suggests that there are more GPs now than there were a year ago, I think most of us think that that's clearly inaccurate. We know right now we do not have the capacity to take on more. Which reminds me of the last podcast and indeed the last edition of the BJGP in which we were talking about the essence of general practice. And in fact, there have been lots and lots of letters in response to that. My favourite was from a GP in Japan. Yeah, someone in Japan is reading the BJGP. And her letter was short and to the point, a bit like a haiku, but not 17 syllables. And in fact, actually, that made me look up stuff to do with haikus. And then I found that that's mostly relating to nature. And then a senuru is actually like a haiku with 17 syllables, but to do with people. As I've explained before, one of my patients has already told me I'm not that cultured. So none of you will be surprised at my pronunciation there. But on the off chance that that Japanese GP listens to this podcast, then please do email me and correct said pronunciation. 
Anyway, I digress once again. So in her letter, she said, both patient safety and the co-creation of meaning for patients' lives are critical in our practices because they're both connected to the patient's well-being. There are no conflicts between the two. There is only the optimal ratio of the two to achieve each patient's well-being. I think she makes a really good point. Ultimate safety and ultimate reduction in risk does not necessarily mean providing someone with a good life. And that's why they're not getting rid of general practice anytime soon. And so on to fit testing. Perhaps quality of life can be achieved by doing a poo sample rather than having a colonoscope rammed up you. But what if you already meet the criteria for NICE's two-week wait for suspected colorectal cancer? So that's what this study was looking at. 5,000 patients who are fully evaluated with said scope after having red flag symptoms and signs for bowel cancer. All of them also had a fit test. Uh, 3% or 151 of them ultimately were diagnosed with colorectal cancer and then they use this to be able to compare against the findings of the FIT test. So remember that FIT tests uh, are quantitative tests. So you can um, change the threshold at which you consider someone to be higher or lower risk and that will change your sensitivity and your specificity. They found that the optimal cutoff value in their minds was 19 which probably won't mean much to us, but that gave a sensitivity of 80, 85%, a specificity of 85% as well. And whilst neither of those sound particularly thrilling, actually together that gives a negative predictive value of 99.5%. So by using this, if it's negative, we can be confident that we're only going to be missing one in 200 cases. So should fit testing replace colonoscopy as the go-to test for patients that meet two-week wait criteria? Well, the authors don't go quite that far. They actually suggest using the fit result along with the other patient characteristics to have an individualised risk profile that then can further inform us on whether colonoscopy is likely to be helpful or not. Ultimately, this would end up reducing unnecessary colonoscopy referrals, which would be a great thing for most of our patients. But we still need to be mindful about the limitations of fit testing. We need, still need to safety net. And they also highlight that there were quite a few patients that were referred that had non-cancer diagnosis, things like inflammatory bowel disease that did merit prompt assessment and management and may otherwise be missed. So clinical judgment would still be the order of the day. Anyway, for now, we have to keep doing what we are doing, following the existing guidelines. But it's interesting to see the way that things might be changing. You can see how the research is likely to shape the coming guidelines over the next few years. OK, so that's enough for today. Thanks for joining us once again, everyone. I'm off on holiday this weekend for a couple of weeks. Then working like crazy, putting the presentations for the new Hot Topics course together. So... We'll do the next podcast sometime in September, but do, do join us for the new Hot Topics course. It's going to be web-based for the time being, but live and interactive. So check out the website for the course dates. And we've got new women's health courses coming up as well. That's been all updated and plenty more coming too. So fingers crossed for some sunshine and some warm weather. Get the ice creams in and I'll see you next time. Bye-bye.